The vision received was that of blood cells traveling throughout the body supplying the much needed oxygen and other nutrients to the differing members of the body to fulfill their purpose. Once the blood cells are spent, they must return back to the heart to be refilled before being sent out again and fulfill their purpose. Well, good morning. Welcome once again as we continue our series in the, res the principles of the doctrine of Christ and then focusing on, in particular, the resurrection of the dead. We had some, well, we have a good amount of scriptures to meditate on last week regarding allowing Him to do His perfect work in us by His Spirit to bring us to completion and not to get to disheartened, not to get um, where we lose our faith and... and, and uh, and realize that God in the day of Christ Jesus, in His perfect time, will complete us. He will perfect us. And as we get into the resurrection of dead, we haven't done this following section, because we just haven't gotten there yet, but I think it would be incredibly important for us to look at what did the apostles teach concerning the resurrection. We looked at what Jesus said to Mary, to Martha, um, regarding Lazarus, um, but we haven't quite delved into what did the apostles preach or teach concerning the resurrection. And what's important to note is that when they preached the gospel, they included the truth with the gospel that yes, there is a resurrection from the dead. Why? Because they preached that Jesus rose from the grave and that he was resurrected. Now the following a uh, piece of, uh, of scriptures that we're going to read now comes from Peter preaching his first gospel. Anybody know where that was? When did Peter preach the first gospel? Acts chapter 2. That's right. On what day? The day of Pentecost. So we're going to go there. Uh, we remember that there was 120, about 120 disciples in the upper room waiting uh, for this promise of the Father that Jesus spoke of and to not leave till they be endued with power from on high and then they become witnesses. <coughs> and so they did that. They were faithful to obeying His Word and they were there and they had just received the Holy Ghost just as it was promised and people were speaking in tongues as the evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost and He started to preach the Gospel and He starts by identifying the man Jesus of Nazareth. So let's read some of these scriptures and consider them. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And we'll read two verses at a time through 32, starting with Deborah. The men of Israel hear these words, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders, and wonders and signs, but which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered in the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he has taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And the next two, please. Me? Around Robert. Oh. Uh, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that she, he should have holden it. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall 
best in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of, of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his... I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Sepulchre. Oh, okay. Is mm -hmm. he with us? What is that, anyway? A tomb. His tomb. Oh. Remember we talked about that last week, because you asked the question, you know, about burning? Right. They, they always had a tomb. They and always had a place of birth. He is with us until this day. Mm -hmm. Next two. Uh, Thank you. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now this was a prophecy recorded by David in the book of Psalms. And I believe they thought that it referred to David. What they didn't realize is that it was actually prophetic in the sense that the Spirit of God was speaking through David concerning his seed and what he would do with his seed which goes back to the promise he made with whom? He made a promise to whom and his seed? Abraham. It goes back to Abraham. This is David is still in that line. It referred to Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead. This is what the what the apostle Peter is saying. And that his soul would not be left in hell, and his flesh would not see corruption. That's why he had to be raised on that third day. So when we preach the gospel, this is the type of thing that people need to know. They need to know that this man had been prophesied to die, but the promise was that his flesh would never see corruption, his soul uh, would not be left in hell, and God would raise him from the dead. Jesus Christ was prophesied many centuries before he manifested in the flesh, and his purpose was determined before he was born of the Virgin Mary. Because God knew the end from the beginning. Let's read Acts chapter 4, verse 2. Again, just recognizing, man, what did the apostles talk about? What did they teach or preach about regarding the resurrection? Go ahead, Devin. Being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So there, that's pretty explicit. That's why it's one of the principles of the doctrine of Christ. It's a basic fundamental teaching and preaching that we give to others. They preach the gospel and they preach that through Jesus you could obtain the resurrection from the dead because people then, just like today, want to know, well, what's going to happen when we die? Is that it? Is it over? Are we, are we just like a vapor and that's it? And they ask, is that it? Or am I going to become some animal? in the sea, or am I going to become some fowl in the air? You know, because there is the idea of reincarnation. There's a lot of other things out there. They, everybody wants to know what's going to happen. Is this all there is to it? 
You know, they, they came out with a movie. Is this as good as it gets? Because if it is, then that's why they, they, that, that reinforces the idea that they should just live life to the fullest, however it is. No matter what, no, no rules, no standards, no boundaries. Just have, just enjoy it. Eat, drink, be merry, and then die. The scripture said that thousands and thousands of years ago. But this is the hope that we want to impart to them. That if they will give up their life to obtain his life, they can have eternal life. And the promised resurrection from the dead. Just as Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, so can they obtain the resurrection of the dead, but only through Jesus Christ. So later on in Acts, we see Paul in a Greek city. And Greek history shows us that the Greeks were polytheistic. Anybody know what that means? Polytheistic. Poly means many. Theistic means gods. Deist. Polytheistic. Many gods. That's what they were. I mean, we can name them today. Zeus. I mean, no, Hercules, eh, he was kind of a demigod. He was like a man guy. Apollos, Athena. Athena. You know, we have, we still know them today. They're they're part of Greek mythology, <clears throat> but they believed in them like we believe in God. We believe in God that He's real, that He's alive. But they believed in them, not like we see their gods as oh, that's just mythology. Right. No, that was their religion, and so. The Romans copied the Greeks. Because if you know anything about history, after the Greeks, who conquered the Greeks? The Romans. And the Romans took their ideas, their theology, their philosophies, and they incorporated it into their culture, and they came up with their own Roman gods. And so they were also polytheistic. And that's just mixing the history with, 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 with uh, what we read in the scriptures. And the attributes of the gods, they became gods. So they had the God of love. They probably had a God of jealousy. They probably had a God of anger. All of these different attributes, all they became also gods as well. And all their names, including their present names of the planets, those are named after Roman gods. Pluto, remember Pluto was a planet, now it's not a planet. Now it is a planet? So they went back and forth. The pendulum is swung again. Okay? So, I mean, our, our, our days, Saturn, I mean, Saturday, after Saturn, um, they all came from the Greek gods. So with that understanding, Paul goes to a Greek city, he goes to a place called Mars Hill, and he preaches about Jesus. And he preached that Jesus was among all of these statues of the different gods that they had. Because they made statues of their gods. Something to represent each and every God. But there was one particular statue that they had that didn't have a name. Yeah, it's written there. Y'all need to go read it. And in the title of that name, well, actually, we'll read it. It was titled like the unknown God. And so Paul used that as, in teachers, in education, we use that as a teachable moment. Ah. I'm going to take that and use that from them and then teach them about the real God. So the Greeks gathered together every morning 
and they start arguing and philosophizing and coming up with different ideas and, and all of these things. And they begin to argue with each other about truths and wisdom, like Paul, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Plato, like Aristotle. And Paul himself put himself right in the middle. And he boldly declared what we're about to read in Acts chapter 17. Who's next? Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 18. Again, read two verses each, and we'll just go round robin until we're done in verse 34. And just put yourself in the position. I gave you the historical context. It's about the Greeks. They believe in many gods. They wake up in the morning, and they start arguing with each other and start you know, trying to put each other down with their best argument about whatever it is that they're arguing about. What was that word you used, though? Which one? For many gods? Polytheistic. Polytheistic. I said Acts 17, right? Acts chapter 17, <laughs> starting in verse 18. I'm not sure. Are we going around? I'm going around. Okay. Two verses at a time. Then for... Certain. <laughs> then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some... He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. See that? That's part of their preaching. They preached Jesus and what? The resurrection. Keep going. But they took him, and they brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is, whereof thou speakest, is. Thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians, mm -hmm. the strangers which were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So you see how the scriptures is describing. This is what they did all the time. They got together in Spanish we said to charlar, to sit down, to, 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 to start, you know, talking and, and chit-chatting. And this is what they did every day. And if they heard something new, hey, what, what, what's that? Let's hear that. And, and they would just start entertaining all of these ideas because they just bring about their own ideas. They mix it all together and they come up with something fancy, something to, to kind of tell good tales and tell good stories. I'm sure you maybe met some storytellers there would just take anything and just <laughs> make up a story so that they can grab everybody's attention and have their ears. Well, that's what the Greeks were like. And they just did it every day. That's what they did. Continue. Then Paul stood, stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I, unto you. God, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and live and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said, 
before we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he has ordained. Wherefore he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they have heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Albeit certain men plague unto him, and believed, among which was Dionysus, mm -hmm. and the Aeropagite, thank you, mm -hmm. and a woman named Demarius and others with him. That's right. So we see here clearly that Paul preached Jesus, he preached his resurrection. When Paul spoke of how God raised up Jesus from the dead, that was the resurrection of the dead, which he intertwined with the gospel. But I want to go back over this a little bit. But notice here at the end of the pal passage, did you see Paul baptize anyone? No. No. Do you see him praying for anyone to receive the Spirit? No. No. Now, we've gone through that. That was, that was part of the fundamental doctrines of God, but he didn't do that. He knew where he was. He was with vain and foolish men who came here every day, every week, every month to start arguing and philosophizing and trying to get the better argument. But what he simply did was preach the gospel to them and they said at the end, hmm, let's argue about this again tomorrow. That's kind of what they said. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you can read that and see that they're not buying everything that he's saying. They're saying, eh, let's talk about this again tomorrow. But Paul knew he wasn't sent to sit there and argue with the world and go back and forth, tit for tat. Especially when they're arguing, when they're going to be foolish about it. Because they mocked and they jeered him. What? The resurrection of the dead? Oh, this guy's nuts, you know. And our responsibility as ambassadors of Christ is simply to share and declare unto them the truth. That's Paul's example to us. And if we sense in our spirit that they are ready to receive it, then we continue on and we go on with the response to that gospel. But notice also that there was scant few that received. I mean, it named them. Who was it among them? And them meaning there was plural. So it was a small uh, group. And one of them was Dionysius, the Arapagite, and, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. How many others? I don't know. But it was a small, small cohort. So Paul simply departed. He didn't sit there to argue with them and say, okay, we'll come back tomorrow and, and, and do this again. But those who had their ears uh, peaked with curiosity, what did they do? They ended up following him. And that's how we have to minister to people in this world. We stand there, we declare, we present the truth, but we don't sit there and day after day 
establish relationship with them, to try to argue with them and try to, you know, counter every point and, 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 and debate. Because that's what the Greeks did. They debated. Paul didn't debate. He stood there. He declared the truth that this God whom you know as the unknown God, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one that created all the nations out of one blood. He's the one that created the boundaries of the nations to cause them to seek his face. And if you don't accept that, that's fine. Bye. Oh, but Dionysus? Oh, but Damaris? Oh, but the few of you? Oh, they went and followed him. See, that's how our ministry of the kingdom should be. We go present, we go give the light, and people should follow that light. That's how you know that they're interested in the truth. It's not you stay there and you continue to go back and forth and continue to think that you're going to save, that you're going to deliver, that you're going to redeem. You're not the savior. You're the deliverer of the message. And if they hear, they'll follow you not the other way around. He knew exactly what was going on. He discerned the spirit in their hearts of those men and what they were really about. They were blind and they could not see. And him sitting there trying to testify to them and preach them and teach them what he knew that wasn't going to, to amount to anything. He boldly, he without shame, without reservation, said that all of creation testifies of this master creator and that through him everything is being kept in order. There is an order that can be seen. There is an intelligence that can be perceived just by looking at the complexity of a, of a blooming flower out there. You know, that nice little bud. Did you, ever, did you see a flower like that? They just budded. I mean, you just take a nice close picture of it and you see all the little details and how complex it is. Man, how did this happen? Because it wasn't there. There wasn't even green stem. There was just nothing. It was like dirt. And then all of a sudden you look over and it bloomed. I mean, fantastic. Awesome displays of creation. That can't be just happen, just happenstance. It can't happen in chaos. There must be some intelligence, some sense of, of being who has order, who has purpose, and that this come about. Because this doesn't come about through chaos. Chaos doesn't bring this. It's too ordered. It's too complex. And in its complexity, it's still ordered. It follows a, 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 a steps and examples. Uh, it, it's just, it, it can't come out on its own like this. But it's foolishness and the hardness of the heart of man that will not receive the simplicity of, wow, there has to be something greater to produce something like this. So he discerned their hardness, but he still preached to them the gospel. And Paul told his spiritual Timothy, you remember Timothy, his son, not to argue with people with vainly talking about genealogy and this and that. I think we've mentioned that before when he wrote a letter to 1 Timothy. He said, don't bother doing any of that. Because, hey, he's not going to tell his son what he won't walk in himself. Yes, you go there. Yes, you present the gospel. But you don't sit there and just go back and forth and start arguing and wasting all that time. No. If they're going to hear you, they're going to follow you. And that's your sign to know whether you should stay or whether you should go. Don't bother. Get to the meat. Stick with what's important. Let's consider now Acts 23. 1 through 8. Two verses at a time. Round robin. Who ended? Is that you or me? Yeah. 
That was me. Oh, was you? Okay. So Acts chapter 23, verse 1 through 8. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by and said, Do you revile God's high priest? And then, then said Paul, I wis not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the Lord of thy people. Are we reading too? Mm-hmm. And when Paul perceived that the one part which Sadducees and the other Pharisees he cried out in the council, My brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So this passage is interesting to note and to consider because Paul is preaching publicly from synagogue to synagogue. And in doing so, the Pharisees... I told you that was a sect of the Jews, a religious sect of the Jews, and the Sadducees, another religious sect of the Jews. They both became angry with him and all the things that he was saying. But when they gathered together, united to come against Paul, he realizes, oh, there's a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees here. Hmm. So he says, he's wise as a serpent. Remember the Lord says, be wise as a serpent harmless as a dove, he pitted them against each other. He used what he knew was true. What? The resurrection of the dead. And he pitted them against each other by stating that there is a resurrection of the dead and that's why I'm here before you all being persecuted. So whose side did he kind of side with? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. He got them on his side because, hey, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee and I preach the resurrection of the dead. And it was like, wait, you do? Pharisee's like, oh, what, what, why, are we, why, why, why are we against Paul? What's the matter? And then the Sarah's like, wait, what? No, there's no resurrection. And then all of a sudden, those who were united against Paul just got divided. The whole assembly just, what? And then they started arguing with each other about the resurrection death. The Sadducees didn't want Paul preaching the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees didn't mind that he was preaching the resurrection of the dead because they also believed in the resurrection of the dead. But what he was specifically preaching was through Jesus Christ, you can obtain the resurrection of the dead. So this was something that Paul was constantly preaching. Yes, he was preaching Jesus. Absolutely, without a doubt. But part and parcel with Jesus was identifying not only who he is, that he was manifested in the flesh, he died for our sins, but also what? 
that he rose again. And that through him, we can also be resurrected from the dead. So he included that all listening could obtain through Jesus the same resurrection of the dead, just as Jesus did. And so now let's consider another scripture. Acts chapter 24, verses 10 through 15. Who last read? John? Okay, so uh, Sister Monica, 10 and 11. Brother Ralph, 12 and 13. And you'll finish with 14 and 15. Acts chapter 24, 10 through 15. Then Paul, after that, the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge, unto this nation I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither rising up the people, neither in the synagogue nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call hearsay, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And how hope, have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So here we see Paul emphatically stating, there is a resurrection. He splits it. This is part of the doctrine of the apostles. He says that there is a erection both for the just and the unjust. So this resurrection of the dead, this principle of the doctrine of Christ, we now see is divided into two parts. And I'm going to give you the words that the scriptures use or the description that the scriptures use for each one. So when we talk about the resurrection of the just, there are synonymous terms and phrases that the scriptures use. And I just want you to understand, so when you read the scriptures, you realize, oh, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead for the just. Oh, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead for the unjust. Okay? So the resurrection of the just is also known as the first resurrection. And we've already read some of these scriptures, so I'm just trying to like, put it together here as we come to a, a conclusion here at the end. It is also known as eternal life. Being perfect in Jesus Christ. It is also described as the natural body or the natural to the spiritual body. Paul also described it as the corruptible becoming incorruptible. He also described it as the mortal becoming immortal. And the resurrection of the just is also described as never dying again. Because he said the second death has what? No power.
Now, the resurrection of the unjust is also known as the second resurrection. It is also known as eternal judgment. Or eternal condemnation. Or damnation, excuse me, not condemnation, but damnation. It is also known as the second death, or leading to the second death. Because the second death, what? Cast into the lake of fire. And if you're cast into the lake of fire, you got eternal what? Torment. Everybody have all that? We're good? All right. So let's now go back to the scriptures. Reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, two at a time, verses 1 through 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Who last finished? Anybody remember? That was you. Okay. So, Patricia, you're next, and when you're ready. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen as Cephas. He was seen by Cephas. Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to His presence. Now, that's an interesting term that maybe we haven't talked about. Fallen asleep is a terminology used for the saints who have physically died, but they're in Christ. They've just fallen asleep. They used the term asleep for they understood that they were not what? Really? Dead. Dead, exactly. So they didn't say they were dead. They said, oh no, they're just asleep. Because what, what, did, what did they believe? They're going to be resurrected. So they're going to wake up. But they're going to wake up different. They're going to wake up changed. We were baptized into Christ. That was when we died. We died to ourselves. We died in Christ. This is our first death, if you will. And the only death we ever experienced because we're never going to die twice. Jesus didn't die twice. And Jesus will never die twice. He only died once. He doesn't need to die twice, so neither do we. So, remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in the second Corinthians now, the second letter to the Corinthians, verse 14 and 15. Chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 14 and 15. I'm sorry, who's next? Readings? Okay. 
For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but to him who died for them and rose again. So he died in our place. And when he died in our place, if we died in him, then what he did, allowing himself to go through, he did it in our place. So he bore his sins? No, he bore our sins on the cross. So when we die with him and we walk in that, he, we died in him and we now live in him, there is no more death for us. Because our body is not us. We're talking about spiritually. Body dies, yes. It's gonna go to it's gonna go to the to the dust. It's gonna go back to the ground. It's gonna go back from whence it came. But that's not us. It's how we express ourselves in this natural fallen state or world that we live in and exist in. But our spirits is who we are. He breathed into us what? The breath of life. And that was our spirit. So when our flesh expires, it is considered what? It's asleep. That's all it is. So whether we live or whether we die, we're alive in Him. He's our shelter. He's our refuge. He's our our strong tower. He's our covering. And that also can be read in Romans 14, verse 8. So you can just reference that for yourself. But we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 7 through 24. We started with 1 through 6. Took a little, you know short detour to get to 2 Corinthians that talked about we died in Him. We consider ourselves dead in Him so that we're no longer living, but He is living through us. It's His life. And we've risen again in Him because it's His life being lived through us. So now we go back and finish His thought from 1 Corinthians 15, 7-24. I'm not sure. Is it her? Oh, okay. After that, He was seen... He was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. So they're just testifying here. Paul is is describing the fact that when he resurrected from the dead, it's not like just one person saw him. Peter saw him. John saw him. The apostles saw him. And if you thought that, well, they're biased. They were following him for three and a half years. No, 500 other people saw him. <laughs> just, to, just to be clear. And not only did 500 other people saw him, I saw him. Paul said, I saw him. He was seen by me also. Continue on. For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not meet to call an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly that 
than they all. Mm -hmm. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Mm -hmm. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we go back to the idea. He's still dealing with the fact that there are some that are believing and entertaining this idea that is a lie. That there is no resurrection from the dead. How can you say that if Christ resurrected from the dead? That's a contradiction, guys. Can't go that route. I'm sorry, where did we last first? Was it 11 or 12? Uh, 13. 13. Oh, I'm sorry. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if, and it, I know. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. You see, the whole gospel becomes a sham. It becomes an utter lie, not only about Jesus, but also everything that the apostles preach is a lie because He never raised from the dead, if that were true. You cannot go that route and believe that lie because everything becomes a sham. There's no reason for you to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and His kingdom if you don't believe that He rose from the grave and you don't believe that anyone else is going to raise from the dead. Continue, next two. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life... Only two. It's okay. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are out of all men the most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So there's that word again. You see, the reality is, if all of this is not true, obviously our faith is in vain, Everybody can look down upon us. We are the men most miserable because we believe in a lie. Yet the truth is, it is not a lie. Jesus did rise from the dead. And since he rose from the dead, being the first fruits of the resurrection, because if you didn't know, he rose on the day, on the feast of first fruits. That's the day he rose from the grave. So he would, that was another type of, of a significant thing that's happening spiritually. So he's the first fruits of, of what? He's the first fruits of all the other that are going to be resurrected from the dead. And notice how it termed them. It says those who have what? Fallen asleep. That term is for those who are in Christ. The dead that have died that are in Christ are really just fallen asleep because they're also going to be resurrected from the dead. The next two. Which number? 21. 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruit, afterward that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So, We've already heard the term 
resurrection of the just, resurrection of the unjust. It's specifically giving us a timetable here. Jesus already resurrected from the dead. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. But afterward, at His coming, what's going to happen? The rest are going to be resurrected. When? At His coming. What's that called? The second coming. The coming of Christ, where we meet Him in the air. Then what happens after that resurrection? The end comes. He's going to deliver the kingdom to God His Father and when He puts an end to all rule and authority and power. So at the time of His second coming, He's going to do several things. He's going to resurrect all those that are in Him that are asleep. He's going to deliver the kingdom to God and He's going to put an end to all the rule and authority and power. Where? In the earth. He's going to take care of all of them. And so that's where the end times kind of message comes into play. But here, I want you to realize Paul is rhetorically speaking. As he goes through that whole litany of verses, he's rhetorically speaking. He's not expecting them to answer. He's trying to help them understand the logical thought processes. How can you preach Christ risen from the dead and at the same time say there is no resurrection? That is illogical. That is a contradiction. Christ abolishes the idea because He rose from the dead. So there has to be a resurrection from the dead. Now if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then our faith is dead. It's in vain. And those that have fallen asleep, they're going to stay dead. That's what He was saying. But the truth is, He did rise from the grave. And we believe that Christ rose from the grave. That is what makes Him different. That is what makes our faith different from all the other faiths in the world. Our faith is dependent upon this truth. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And afterwards, when He returns to judge all men of righteousness, the saints will resurrect in Him. And so we continue in 1 Corinthians, reading verses 31 through 38. 1 Corinthians. Same chapter. Then we go to 31 through 38. same chapter we just read, verse 31 through 38. I protest, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now a lot of times this particular uh, phrase is used to preach something else. This phrase, I die daily. I die daily to my flesh. I die daily to my carnality. I die daily. I die daily. And it comes right after this verse. But Paul wasn't saying that he's dying daily to his flesh, his carnality, even though there is a principle that we could use for that. But when he talked about I die daily, he said, I put my life on the line daily for this gospel. 
every single day that I go and preach about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, I'm going before Roman governors, I'm going before Roman guards, I'm going into prisons, I'm getting beat up for this gospel. My life is on the line. I've been stoned to death and everybody thought I was dead. Why for this message? This same message that I'm telling you, we cannot go about saying that Christ rose from the grave and then not have a resurrection. I'm dying daily for this gospel. In Rome, they believed in many gods. Caesar was even revered as a god. That is one of the reasons why Christianity was under such persecution in that day. Because they were preaching, no, it ain't you, Caesar. His name is Jesus Christ. Christians would not bow down to Caesar. If they would have, they wouldn't have received the persecution they had. They would have just compromised. They would have come under their rule and not be naysayers and not be people that bring about any type of rebellion against the government. But if, if, if you consider it rebellion to say that, no, Jesus Christ is God, instead of saying, no, you are God, then so be it. That's what Paul was saying. I risk my life daily for this gospel. He put his life on the line every day and sometimes to the point of death. For I told you, he was stoned to death. They threw him out of the city. They literally thought they had stoned him to death and finally Paul was done away with, but he wasn't. Paul said this because he not only knew Jesus Christ was alive, he risked his life because he also believed in the resurrection of the dead. So his life in this day, in this age that we live in, it didn't mean very much. It was not a big deal. Because if he died, what, what, what is he expecting? What is he hoping in? That he's going to be resurrected anyway. So he looked forward to it. If there wasn't a resurrection that Paul could look forward to, why would he risk his life daily? That's why he says, well, how does he say it? Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's be merry. Let's party before we die. But he knows there's a resurrection of the dead, so that's not how he's going to live his life. So let's read 33 and the next two. I guess that's me, right? Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some men will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? In other words, they're questioning these ideas. Did you have a question? You read too much. No, I wanted to read that part before I get to it. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians. I'm trying to put this back in its perspective. He's writing to the Christians that he himself preached the gospel. He established them in the faith. He got them going. He left them because he had he was traveling, you know, uh, uh, apostle, ministering to many different places. He left them to gather themselves. He set forth elders and all of that stuff, and he started building uh, the church in that city. So he is telling them, the uh, the the Corinthians, hey, y'all got to get it together. They were in the flesh. If you know anything about the letter to the first to the Corinthians, he was trying to get them in order because they had just gone way out of order, way out of line in different areas. He was trying to correct and and, and bring them uh, into a sense of order. He tells them, hey, y'all got to wake up. Live to righteousness. Because there was some sin in the camp that they weren't really dealing with appropriately. He says to them, stop sinning. 
There's some there that didn't have the knowledge of God. And there's some there that did, yet they were living in sin. You can't, you can't be a part of the body of Christ, be considered a child of God, holy and acceptable in His sight, and live in sin. You're risking getting yourself cut off. Because Jesus preached, if there's something in you that's causing you to sin, you better cut it off. Because I would rather go to heaven with my hand cut off than go to hell with my whole body. And yes, that's how he treats the members of his body. If they get out of line and they don't want to repent and they want to continue walking in their sin, he's going to cut them off. He's going to cut the branches off that are not bearing forth fruit. He talked about it in a different way. Talk about farming. How farmers will look at the tree and it's bearing forth the apples and the fruit that I want to see. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to prune it, take it off so that it can bring forth more fruit. But if he has this one branch that is not bearing forth that apple and he's waiting year after year, you know what? Chop it off. Because if I chop it off, I'll get fruit from other places. But I'm not going to have a member of my body try to act like they're clothed in my righteousness and holiness and walk in sin. Get it together, guys. Wake to righteousness. Then some question, well, how are the dead, you know, raised up? Because that's the carnal mind. Well, how is that, how is it, how scientifically is that done? I mean, how does he do the particles together and the atoms and People came against the reality of the truth. That's what Satan does. He comes against the truth and he perverts it. Because he knows he can make you fall away if there truly is nothing else to look forward to. If there really is no resurrection of the dead, you are carnally going to, well, I might as well live it up now. I might as well get my jollies now. Because there's nothing else to look forward to. Let's read uh, from Thou Fool. I'll tell you when to stop. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, into every seed his own body. So Paul is telling them, he's trying, to, he's trying to minister to them, he's trying to get them to get their eyes open to see that. When you sow a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow unless something happens to it first. What? It's got to die. In the ground, it's got to die. And, and that seed that was there, uh, something within it breaks apart that dead carcass and then it starts to grow. It's got to break out of that dead carcass so that it can get to the to the ground and in the ground is where it starts creating a root system and it starts getting its nutrients from the ground but it had to die first. You don't plant a big tree first. God can. He'll speak it into existence but not us. We have to plant the seed. We got to sow the ground. We got to dig in. Make sure it's got nice good ground where there's no rocks, there's no thorns, there's no you know, weeds or anything like that that's going to choke the life out of it so that it will die and it will then grow. You sow the seed. Now, literally, a seed dies first to bring forth life to grow. That is why the resurrection, the resurrection can be seen in nature. In the seeds that are planted in the ground. Because through the death of the seed, then afterward comes forth the life 
of the tree. And then later after that comes the fruit of that tree. God sowed in them, God sowed in us a seed. And that seed, remember Abraham's promise? He made the promise to Abraham and his seed. What, who is that seed? Jesus. Jesus Christ. He sowed himself in us. And because we obeyed the gospel that we heard, or because we obeyed the gospel that we heard, Christ died in their place, he died in our place. They died in him, we've uh, died in him. And this is allowed to see the grow in us. Because he was that seed that died in us. So day by day, they, meaning saints of old, that, 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 that uh, received his gospel in the first century all the way to today. And we grow more and more conformed into the image of Christ. Now I'm speaking spiritually. If you speak naturally, well, day by day, that little seed that is in the ground, it's growing, it's creating its root system, it's getting established, it's getting founded. All of a sudden, at some point, it springs up through the earth. And oh, we have this stem, or we have this tree. And, and, and you see the fruits of, of all of these trees out here, these big barks, and it took years and years and years, and you cut it in half, and you see how many years it took by counting the little circles inside the tree. It took a long time. The development of the perfection of Christ in us takes time. But we have this promise that even if we're not there yet, by the time He comes, He's going to bring it to perfection in His day. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Like the speed of a batting of an eyelash. Boom! It's going to be done. But right now, while we're living, He's working slowly. The process is just going through the motions. We are not immediately perfect when we receive the gospel or when we obey it. But what God has done is He has imputed unto us righteousness like He did with Abraham. Abraham believed God and righteousness was imputed to him or accounted unto him. And because of our faith in Christ, we've been given that righteousness. But our total and complete perfection, the total work, will be fulfilled in the day of Christ Jesus. The seed, which is Jesus Christ in us, has been planted, but it takes time to grow. The kingdom of God is growing in us more and more, day by day, as we learn to yield to the Holy Spirit in us. We have to cooperate. If we begin to wrestle and battle with Him, then we have these rocks in our hearts. We have these uh, thorns that are choking out the life of the Word in us. That's why we started our whole, whole, whole engagement with the parable of the sower. Because if God's promises are going to be fulfilled in you, it has to really do with your own heart and what you allow Him to do in you. Because if you don't allow Him to do it in you, none of the promises of God are going to be fulfilled in you. When we learn to yield to the Spirit, for Him to grow and completely do what? Manifest, reveal Himself through us. Through our actions, through our deeds, even the thoughts and the meditations of our heart will be His thoughts and meditations. Let's finish 1 Corinthians 15. Wait, wait, wait. 
Mm. No, we're going to finish the next week. Yeah. We've done a lot there, so let, let's finish this the next week. Amen? Amen. Thus is the ministry of our Father's heart through us. Our utmost desire is to be in the Father's heart, to know the Father's heart, and express the Father's heart to you. If you appreciate listening to this podcast and were blessed, pass it along to a friend, an enemy, a co-worker, a stranger, by text, email, or word of mouth in the hopes that they might be positively impacted as you were. If you are interested in supporting our efforts, we would ask you to consider the following. One, pray for us. Two, leave a positive rating or review with whomever you listen to our podcast with. And three, if you so desire to contribute monetarily, you can do so at paypal.me slash jbenjesus. That's paypal.me forward slash jbenjesus. God bless.